Infirmary Media. Art. People engage to stop a jewel in decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Van out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week I compete with 1981 as we return to the squared circle with a pro wrestling duel. Let's meet this week's other duelers in the decades they will be fighting for. First off, Coming down to the mic, inhaling from parts unknown, it's Man Crush. Yo, what up? I'm coming off uh, two straight losses, so I'm looking for a victory here. But before we get started, I have to give a shout out to David Mobile and Danhausen. He, uh, he, matter of fact, he just sent me another message to remind me to do this. And uh, just because you is doesn't mean you isn't. There you go, David and. <laughs> He also said to say hello to Baklava Bo. So, hello, Baklava Bo. Hello, hello back, Dave. <laughs> yeah, uh, by the way, I have wrestling of 1989. Also on the panel this week, he might not be the doctor of style, but he's still pretty slick. Welcome back to the program, Bo Beecraft. Oh, thank you for that ruckus applause. You're too kind. Uh, glad to be here uh, defending my participation championship this week. <laughs> As always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's celebrity guest judge is an actor, comedian, and wrestler who makes coffee in his underwear live on YouTube Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. Please rise and shine for Judge RJ City. Thank you so much. You could have just called me a raconteur. I believe that just covers all the bases. And I'm trying to bring that word back, you know? There's not many rack on tours anymore. Do you have a shirt that says that? Uh, no, I have a shirt of Paul Lynn's face. <laughs> I hope that's okay for everyone. That is freaky as shit. All I saw when you had your, when it was zipped up, all I saw was two eyeballs. The eyes. <laughs> I will be consulting with Paul Lind throughout this episode. Going to be amazing. But people will be disappointed to know that you're not in your underwear for this. Or you no, actually, well, you might be. I, I mean, I may be. In a sense, I am. I just have shorts over them. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. All right, duelers, to be the man, you gotta beat the man. So let's play some more. Dueling decades. All right, we'll go right down to our judge, RJ City, for the official toss off. Now, I won the last episode, so Man Crush and Bo B. Craft will toss this one off. Bro, you can uh, you could call it. Wow. What a pleasure and honor. Uh, Let's go. Let's go heads with whatever you got. What do you have? 
Okay, well, what I have is a copy of Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon. Ooh. Yeah, it's a wonderful book of, of debauchery from classic Hollywood, including uh, Charlie Chaplin, Fatty Arbuckle, all that kind of thing. Because I want it to be as current as possible on your show. <laughs> I want it to, if I feel like if I do my stuff, you guys will seem cutting edge. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and look at the spine on that book. It yeah. looks pretty broken in, too. Yeah. It's oh, it's one. been used, and I won't tell you how. Uh, so just to confirm, this is the uh, the head with James Manfield's face on the cover. <laughs> right in our wheelhouse. Yeah. And then, of course, the back has a short bio about Kenneth Anger and what a bitter childhood actor he was. Are we ready? I'm going with Jane. All right. Jane, it is. Ooh. Yes. All right, Bo Beecraft, you take control of the board and can select the first category. Ugh, should I go with my weakest one or my strongest one first? That's up to you. Oh, man. I don't, I don't know if there's a weak one in this bunch. Let's, uh, I'll go television. I, I should mention, by the way, I'm, I'm representing uh, wrestling in 1995 this week. All right. Uh, television, wrestling, 1995. My pick is going to be September 4th, 1995. That marked the premiere episode of WCW Monday Nitro on TNT, uh, famously going head-to-head with the wrestling giant, the WWF, as it was then known. Uh, it's kind of come to be known as the Monday Night Wars, or I guess it is. It hasn't really kind of come to be. 83 weeks in which Nitro beat the flagship WWF program Monday Night Raw. That was kind of the whole catalyst for Vince McMahon ushering in the Attitude Era, which was a more adult-oriented pro wrestling product. Uh, But with any long-running television series, the show experienced ultimate highs and lows before both the show and WCW as we knew it uh, would fold after being purchased by Vince McMahon in 2001 after nearly 300 episodes. So pretty good run, episodic-wise, or episode number-wise. I saw that they just uh, put in a trademark again for uh, WCW. Yeah. Oh, boy. What's yeah. old is new again, everyone. <laughs> All right. So I'll go next. For television wrestling 1981, you know, I did some digging, and I found something that here on the show, we have a, an expression we like to use, that it has legs, that there's some longevity to the story. So this match that I found definitely has legs. April 25th, 1981, we have the very first ever empty arena match between Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler. So what had happened was Jerry Lawler had gone away for a little while, and when he came back, they decided to make him a face. His former manager, Jimmy Hart, decided that he was going to take out a bounty on Jerry Lawler and had different people in all the different territories to try to collect that bounty. After a long feud with Terry Funk, you finally thought the feud was ending, and then Terry Funk comes up with a great idea to elevate it even further. They're going to do it in an empty arena. The whole thing was kind of shot renegade style with one person and just Lance Russell on commentary, and even before that, he's chain-smoking cigarettes on camera (laughs) with the mic, and he's not even sure if this match is going to take place, if they're ever going to air this footage. And then Terry Funk comes in, profanity lace promo jerry lawler nowhere to be found and then like a fucking asshole jerry lawler comes in all dressed in white with the cape and the hat but i'll tell you what this is an absolutely fantastic match and if you go watch any of the empty arena stuff that's going on now you need to go back and watch this first 
There's a lot of things that can be learned. Just in the presentation alone, you weren't sure if this was a work or a shoot. So that's what I'm going to go with. April 25th, 1981, the empty arena match with Terry Funk and Jerry the King Lawler. I hope there's somebody listening that doesn't understand the phrase. They decided to make Jerry Lawler a face as if he had become so grotesque that they had to cut someone else's skin off and leather face him. He was like Elephant Man. (laughs) Jerry Lawler in Mask 2. It's like the John Travolta movie. It literally means face off. God's a great one. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for television? All right. Well, first off, I want to say that it's nice being in between and like kind of Oreo cookie between you guys, because I feel like I have a little bit of your pick and a little bit of Bo's right in the middle. It's uh, not planned, but that's how it came out. We got November 15th, 1989, before a sold out crowd of just over 4,000 ravenous fans at the Houston Fieldhouse in Troy, New York. This television event, it drew a fantastic 4.9 share for uh turner broadcasting that's like monday night war numbers very impressive for wrestling in 1989 on television i must say because what, what were they doing like during those 83 weeks like fives usually fours and fives sure <laughs> it, it ranged usually somewhere between four four and a half some of the episodes even got up to the the low fives yeah so that like for 4.9 1989 for wrestling i think that's a huge number oh definitely um but i you know, I, like I honestly, I feel gypped that I missed out on a lot of these like WCW NWA events as a kid. Like being in New York, obviously WWF is king, especially if you live close to the city. And over the last few years, I've gone back and I've watched a bunch of this stuff that I never got to see. I missed out on a lot. But my parents back in the day, they would buy me all these like wrestling magazines as a kid. And they always had these amazing photos of Ric Flair on the cover. <laughs> they were centerfolds. <laughs> Dude, seriously, there were like there was pinup pictures of him with the belt, like he'd be like bloody and sweaty and stuff. And I never knew like where I could watch this because they they just didn't have it where I was. And it feels so simple nowadays because you could just Google somebody and boom, you can learn everything about them. But like in 1989, I'd get these magazines. I had no fucking clue how to see these matches. But here you go. This television event right here, I definitely missed out on. Listen to this card. So there were seven matches this night. You had the Freebirds versus the Road Warriors. You had Doom versus Eddie Gilbert and Tommy Rich. You had the Midnight Express versus the Dynamic Dudes. I didn't know anybody else had a skateboard besides Darby Allen, so that's pretty fucking cool. (laughs) Uh, Steve Williams, uh, Super Destroyer, Steiner Brothers, Skyscrapers, Lex Luger against Pittman, or Pillman, rather, and then you had the the granddaddy like this match, the I quit match between Ric Flair and Terry Funk to just cap it. Like amazing. Like almost every single one of these matches has a hall of famer in it. And speaking of the main event, it's a culmination of a six month feud between Ric Flair and Terry Funk. And it all comes down to this. I quit match. This guy's name. He comes up all the time for years. And maybe like RJ can weigh in on this, but Dave Meltzer, of the wrestling observer. He rated this match, the top match of 1989. And matter of fact, he rated five matches with that five star honor in 1989. Ric Flair was in four of them. Yeah. So, you know, having finally been able to see this stuff over the last 20 years, he's really, he's in my Mount Rushmore. You know, I got like Flair, Stone Cold Savage and HBK 
uh, RJ, maybe you can get it. You could squeeze in there. Somewhere Dave Meltzer is kind of like the Gene Shallot. <laughs> does he have the hair though he should he used to have a mullet and i think everyone was very took him much more seriously then uh no he has a, certainly his biases as anyone who just gives their opinion on stuff does it's right. a matter of taste but there it's one of those things where like clearly it's a great match no matter what you're into right you can it's, at least I mean, even amazing. if you don't like it you still have to say it's a great match i also want to say it's very telling that in two of these picks terry funk is featured prominently yeah it's almost like if you take my pick and bo's pick and merge them yeah you get man crush's <laughs> pick it's it's really it's crazy and i could have put i was big on wwf obviously like i said before just growing up and i could have put a tv match from wwf here but honestly i don't think any of them held a candle to this match you know hogan savage in 89 it was fun but it's not on par with this Hogan, boss man, it's whatever. Uh, Ultimate Warrior, Rick Rude, maybe. But like Flair Steamboat in 89 and Flair Funk were epic. But this television event, it's amazing. And this is Clash of the Champions 9, New York Knockout. And it took place on, what date was it again? November 15th, 1989. And it has the infamous, even always with Terry Funk in both scenarios, the empty arena match and the I Quit match, there's also like oddly specific displays of violence and injury in the New York knockout. There's the bag over the head. Yep. Yep. Which is incredibly dangerous and frightening. And in the empty arena match, he gets his eye taken out yeah. screaming bloody murder <laughs> in this just horrible display of suffering. It's like as great as the empty arena match is, it's incredibly difficult to watch. It is. <laughs> oh it yeah. Is. I watched the whole thing today and yeah, it holds up well though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As like a, whoa, what the fuck was that? Almost the same way you would watch bum fights. <laughs> oh, now we're talking. When's you know? the bum fights episode? Can I, I come that. on for that one? You know what we didn't mention, too, is you had Jimmy Hart and I had Gary Hart. That is true. It's another weird tie-in. And I had heart to heart. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, let's we'll toss this one to RJ City for the ruling. Yeah, I'll tell you what was what was not mentioned about the initial episode of Nitro is that the stunning conclusion to it was that Lex Luger shows up wearing what seems to be a women's blouse. <laughs> yeah, with the frillies? Did he Fresh have frillies from the on the neck? Yes, and the classic line on commentary was, get the camera off him. Because <laughs> it wasn't scripted at all. And it was in the Mall of America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was such a weird setting. So, and you would have people going up the escalator, like going to TJ Maxx or something. <laughs> and they were like, what is this? Why is Brian Pillman here? It was right after a <laughs> Tiffany concert. As influential as all these experiences and matches are, I must say the first episode of Nitro did really set off a reverberation through the entire business and changed the landscape as opposed to Let's do TV shows that build to pay-per-views. It really started the game of let's make every TV show its own mini pay-per-view. And that's what that was. So for that reason alone, I will have to give the nod to 1995. This is a rarity. I don't don't know what to do with myself. Bo gets two rounds in a row. All right, Bo, you pick up a point and take control of the board. What category Mm. are we going with next? Well, Alex, uh, let's go with uh, let's go with hot products. The first time in the entire 
existence of this series that I'm I'm feeling pretty good about a hot product. In round two? In round two, sir. Yeah. Uh, 1995, no specific date. There were a few different dates because this was a multi-platform release, but it was the uh, release of the classic digital grappler WWF WrestleMania, the arcade game. Uh, released by Arcade Titans Midway, which, of course, they made uh, NFL Blitz, one of my favorite games. Uh, eight members of the WWF roster, which is pretty dismal compared to the size of the roster you get today in uh, video games. But commentary from Vince McMahon and Jerry the King Lawler. Uh, I would assume there are some likely very dated off-color remarks in that commentary. Oh, what a maneuver. <laughs> <laughs> Neither here nor there. Uh, the game was released in an arcade cabinet version first. Uh, and then it made its way to uh, home consoles like PlayStation, Sega Saturn, Super Nintendo, PC, believe it or not. Uh, but it was described as WWF meets NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat, which I don't know if you can ask that much more out of a game in 1995. Pretty favorable reviews uh, for its well-rounded presentation from detailed characters, fun gameplay, all that stuff. Uh, so it's it's kind of a kind of a classic. People are still porting it today and still playing it on those, uh, you know, whatever you call it online where you go to... Uh, play old games you can't get physically anymore so that's my pick hot product 1995's release of wwf wrestlemania the arcade game wow solid mm. so you went i just want to clarify so you went with the arcade game yeah i'll i'll i'll, I'll just say i went with the cabinet version gotcha. although the okay. arcade game is available was available on i think sega genesis and super nintendo mm-hmm. right that was the name of the game. Was the arcade right, game? The arcade, the arcade game. Got that's why I didn't. I didn't know if he was talking about the cabinet. Yeah, it's the a, well, it's the actual title. So it came out as the cabinet version, and then slowly right. ported its way to home consoles. And gotcha. I think the phrase "the arcade game" was code for exactly like Mortal Kombat. <laughs> <Yeah>. Correct. <laughs> Total ripoff. Yeah, that's fine. All right. So for my hot product, you know, a few episodes back, Man Crush had gone with some concert tickets. So that kind of got me thinking, like, if you were in wrestling, 1981, hot product, you'd want tickets to the biggest event. So PWI ranked the number one feud for all of 1981 was Andre the Giant versus Killer Khan. And this went for the whole year. And then something that people couldn't believe happened. Killer Khan broke Andre the Giant's ankle. He put Andre the Giant up on the ropes. Killer Khan dives off the rope, drives the knee into Andre the Giant's ankle, and breaks his ankle, puts Andre the Giant out of commission. In reality, what had happened was Andre broke his ankle the morning of the match getting out of bed. So he had to do a little bit of time in the hospital, but they wrote it into the storyline. So on November 14th, 1981, at the Philadelphia Spectrum, they had the Mongolian Stretcher Match. Now, the only way to win this match, of course, was to put somebody on a stretcher and have them carried out of the arena. Oddly enough, they never really thought of the fact that the stretcher, of course, could hold Killer Khan, <laughs> but there is no way that the stretcher was going to hold Andre. So, spoilers. All right, so I went to our good friends over at newspapers.com, and in the Courier Post out of Candom, New Jersey, November 13th, 1981, found an article here it says canvas the bouts and it has a nice picture of andre from one of the previous bouts with uh killer khan and a headlock and it says if you've never seen a mongolian stretcher match you'll want to watch killer khan and andre the giant demonstrate it for you at the spectrum tomorrow 
Also on the 10-match card are Bomb Backland against the Magnificent Morocco. A tag team pairing, Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saido against S.G. Jones and Tony Atlas. Tickets are $6, $7, and $8. So for as low as 6 bucks, you could go see the iconic Mongolian stretcher match, which was the big blow-off to this year-long feud that PWI called the best feud of 1981. I got confused. There used to be a video in the back room at my local video store called the Mongolian Stretcher, but it definitely wasn't wrestling. <laughs> was that through the beating curtain? <laughs> yeah. Definitely wasn't wrestling. So that's my hot product, the hottest ticket in town. Andre the Giant and Killer Khan in this Mongolian Stretcher match. The thing I loved, it was probably like Andre, you know, it's interesting that we were just talking about the elephant man because him getting out of bed and snapping his ankle sounds like how the elephant man died. He tried to get out of bed and he broke his neck. His head just snapped his neck in half. But I imagine Andre, you know, waking up, breaking his ankle, then like calling people, calling Vince and be like, hey, my ankle's broken. And he's like, here's what we'll do. You'll wrestle tonight and he'll break your ankle again. And then Andre being like, wait a minute, like, I don't think you quite fucking get it. <laughs> The bad thing already happened. No, it's going to be a Mongolian stretcher match. <laughs> and that's the sad thing. That's what happened, too, because, you know, Vince goes to me, yes, boss. And he and Andre, of course, does it, you know, on a yeah. broken ankle. You know, yeah. I'm sure the match didn't last long, but still, man. No, the, the match has also weird rules. It's like uh, it wasn't very like, look. Mon anything Mongolian sounds cool because none of us have any familiarity with Mongolia. Number one. Number two, judging by the rest of the card with Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito, it's pretty clear that at this time, no Americans liked anyone who was remotely Asian. <laughs> that, that was the racist trope du jour. Uh, even though I'm pretty sure uh, Mr. Saito was like Hawaiian or something. That was like the classic wrestling turn. And then the stretcher match is just like, you just got to get him on it. It's yeah. like putting a Hummer on a Hot Wheel track, though, getting Andre the Giant on one of those things. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I feel like at one point, he they tried to get him on it. Oh, the men, this is a match that everyone should watch. I feel like the men, you get, they got Khan on the stretcher. And, of course, Khan's playing dead. And these men have to carry him out. And it's really heavy. And Khan's a big fella. And it's dead weight, and they keep dropping him. And it's just, like, really just reckless and sad. And now, all of a sudden, I have sympathy for Killer Khan, a man named Killer. I now have sympathy for yeah, him. And that feud killed Killer Khan because after this year-long feud, he kind of faded off into obscurity. I mean, Andre kind of demolished his career after this. Yeah, it's a shame. All because Andre had to leap out of bed. Right. <laughs> he couldn't get that ramp that old bulldogs have after like 75 beers the night before. <laughs> yes. Like I doubt he was leaping. You're picturing like this Disney princess scenario. He's like, Oh, what a beautiful morning. <laughs> the birds Oops. are coming and landing on his giant arms, but they're not little birds. They're like giant birds and owls. And they're like buzzards. Can you imagine though, trying to walk like you guys are like Bo, like what are you like two hundred pounds? RJ, Wait, you're you calling like me fat? Pounds. Yeah, um, but like <laughs> if you broke your ankle and you tried to walk on it, you know, how fucking painful that would be. And this oh, dude was no like four hundred, five hundred pounds. Yeah, and do you he know had how to much do pain that? he was in already? Just living. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My God, awful, yeah. fucking awful. You want to like, dude? Your knowledge 
is fucking it's impressive. crazy. It oh, is super you. impressive. Like Butch Patrick was a was sharp as attack, but you know the shit like you're not reading it off anything. You're just pulling it out. Like we've researched this shit to bring it to you. And you just know it. I love to ponder. Like there's, I have so much in my head about this shit. I like to ponder what I must've forgotten. Like what <laughs> skills I don't have because my brain is working for this. What you, math? Cursive writing? What? What? A lot of functional well, that's what you have motor skills. Cell phone for. Can't yeah. do it. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real shame. Shoe tying. The kid just can't figure out how to use a spoon. <laughs> yeah. Funny story on how this episode came about. Listeners of the show, shout out to Brian and Tommy and uh, I think Chris and the and Red Eric. Ranger. They had they had sent a message to Shane Helms, and I was getting the the episode together. And I sent a message. I knew Bo was coming on. I'm like, who do you want? And he's like, oh, try for RJ City. And I was like, all right. So I sent a message to you, and they sent a message to Shane. I didn't know that they sent this message to him. And both of you guys replied at like the same fucking time. And I was like. Uh, we got a problem because like we don't want to do like back-to-back wrestling episodes and uh he sent us a message and he's like oh what's up and i told him what the episode was about and i was talking to you at the same time and you were like yeah let's do it and i we just stopped talking with (laughs) 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 but i'm glad now because dude you're like i cannot believe how much shit you know just off the top of your head thank you and well let me point out another bizarre wrestling connection as you know i'm in a uh feud and begrudging friendship and tag team with David Arquette. <laughs> and in the movie Ready to Rumble, Shane Helms was David Arquette's stunt double. That's no kidding. crazy. Wow. And to to make it even further six degrees of Kevin Bacon, we got Jamie Kennedy from Scream coming on for next week. Isn't that bizarre? That's crazy. We live in a fucking weird that, universe. It's so Don't weird we? that all these middling celebrities would have nothing to do right now. <laughs> so, so unusual and serendipitous. It's so crazy. Can I tell you my favorite piece of Arquette-related wrestling trivia? As you may know, there was a cartoon called Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. David Arquette's father, Louis Arquette, was the voice of Superfly Jimmy Snuka. <laughs> okay? The voice of Hulk Hogan was actually Brad Garrett and the voice of the junkyard dog to bring it all around to what we're talking about before we even started, James Avery. So crazy. And then he was Shredder. And then Kevin Nash was super Shredder. And then I was in a movie with (laughs) Kevin Nash. Jesus, this is too much. We should just end this now. (laughs) Oh, what a beautiful morning. Well, before we end this game, why don't we end this round first? Man Crush, what do you got for HUD products? I'm, we're trying. It doesn't matter. People <laughs> listen either way. All right. So much like Bo, like I couldn't pinpoint a date for this one. It was kind of like all over the place. It was 1989. They were released though. And this product right here, it made an appearance on season three of Netflix's The Toys That Made Us. So you know it's going to be pretty iconic. And honestly, I would put these figures right behind my G.I. Joes as a favorite toy. Oh, kid. damn you. Every kid in my neighborhood had one of these. Literally all the kids on my block had them. And I know this. Because when we were juniors in high school, this is like 94, 95. Uh, my friend Robbie had this rocket set with like all these rocket launchers. And we strapped these to rockets in the field behind my house. And uh, like, I'm proud to say my Vince McMahon figure, he made a great journey and he landed up on a roof and it was there for years. He just <laughs> laid there in his fucking suit 
his little uh, commentator blazer. And he's posed like this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you know where I'm going with this already. He's, so, it looks like he's about to sneeze. Yeah. yeah and he's, I'm, I wonder if he was burnt at all because all the other ones that we shot off, they either fell off or they just got lost in the woods and we never found them again. But what dickheads we were because I don't even know if they were the ones from the 89 set, like if anybody had one. Uh, but if they did, I'm sure they'd be kicking themselves now. But these eight-inch figures, they actually debuted in 1984. There was a total of six editions. The final series, which was released in 1989, it consisted of six new wrestling figures and 13 re-release figures. And although this is the last year that LGN put out the wrestling superstars, it's the most valuable and collected series of the entire spectrum of LGN superstars. Like, you'll, you'll typically hear people talk about these as the black cards, since LGN, they released the these with a black packaging rather than the typical blue packaging that they had uh, before that. But supposedly, WWF had sold the rights to these just prior to the release of Series 6 to this Canadian company called Grand Toys. So in spite of that, all of these were available to RJ in Canada. You could buy them at a store, but in the United States, you had to get them via mail order. So they made them super sought after in the United States. Cause you just couldn't get them, but we saw them like places. They were like in your Sears catalog and shit, but you couldn't get them at a store, but uh, they go for a pretty penny on eBay. I look some of these up and obviously there's not many that are available because people just don't let these go. But the ones that I found that were in packaging, big boss man was 3,800 bucks. Hacksaw Jim Duggan was a thousand. And I guess he was like a, like there was a lot of that one. And it was still a thousand bucks. Haku, 1900 bucks. And I couldn't even find the super rare ones like uh, Savage or DiBiase. Uh, Adrian Adonis was another one who had been released by the WWF in 87. He died in 88. And they put out this figure in 89. was probably just like a leftover. And some of those figures now are going for like 5000 bucks. Wow. But there you have it. It's uh, Series 6 of 1989. It is pretty LGN. shitty that uh, they didn't really put out like, it wasn't like an Adrian Adonis memorial figure. Right, complete with <laughs> casket. They just put it out like he was still wrestling. <laughs> yep, adorable. The Adonis it was it was so shitty. Like I never saw that one, and I couldn't even find it online. So it must be super rare. I know he was posed like this. I have it. You have <laughs> very feminine. Yes, I have the Adrian Adonis. I have. I don't have Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I, I really have most of them except the ones from this this line. Don't have Adrian. I don't have Big Boss Man. Don't have Haku. Haku is very rare because I think there's one version with a where crown. he has a crown. Yeah, where yep. he was King of Haku when he beat Harley Race yeah. for a week or whatever the deal was. Yep, incredibly rare. So so very weird. And then after that is when they came out with the Hasbro line. Right, that was like the next version of. And then they really just cranked it up and it got a lot better. Yeah, I mean, if you care about articulation then I guess it's a big deal. But like back in the eighties, when we were doing these, the ring was like indestructible. Yeah, yeah. I remember like friends of mine, like jumping on the ring, just being dicks and the thing would never break. And these guys were solid. The worst is when you got a pose and you're like, what this like Jesse Ventura was like this. Like, and you're like, well, what am I going to do with this? Like what, what? Like you can only do hip tosses. Yeah. This isn't very exciting. All the Roddy Piper figure could do is put people in headlocks. Yes. Yeah, that's terrible. You guys have bad imaginations. You just smash them together. Who gives a fuck? What else do you need? Now they got finger articulation and shit. Who cares? But anyhow, that's uh, my pick. uh, Series six of the 1989 LJN WWF Wrestling Superstars.
All right. Well, let's go down to RJ City for the ruling for the hot products round. Uh, the arcade game is terrible. I play it. I do play it, but I also know it's bad. It's one of those <laughs> things where, like, Doink has a hand buzzer that turns you, that shocks you into a skeleton. <laughs> and, you know, the only thing that saves it is that it was followed by an even worse game called In Your House. Yeah. Which was the same, same but worse. They each had their custom arenas, <laughs> and it was, I think it was on the first version of PlayStation. It was really, really terrible. And they just, they didn't know what they were doing at all. It was just very, very bizarre. Yokozuna would throw salt, which is very apropos. <laughs> and as much as I like Killer Khan, and you guys know me, I'm a big Killer Khan guy. <laughs> <laughs> Who isn't? Right. Fair enough. And he also wore those weird flip-flops that were also like kind of stilts to the ring. And they were very, yeah. he had to walk very gingerly. <laughs> But then again, who knows what happens in Mongolia? Not us. Yeah, that's why they have that. They make good barbecue, though. That's you should bring sure. it back, though. You should bring back the Mongolian stretcher, because why not? Yeah, and it was just this. It was like a cot. Yeah. <laughs> like an army cot. So with all that said, and it's really the LJN figures hit me straight in my heart. They are part of every, they're the reason I went to any garage sale. And the reason I still go to any garage sale ever <laughs> is because they may be just, you may see a hacksaw Jim Duggan and some lady doesn't know what the hell he is. And you're like, oh, I'll give him five bucks for this. And he's a loser. <laughs> Trust me. I did a show with him. It's okay. <laughs> so for that reason, I, I have to go with the action figures. Sweet. You know, what's always cool about those two is when you do find them, if they have their clothes still on. Or if they're yes. completely rubbed off. Like I have, um, it's a Stone Cold. It's not an LJN. It's like a later one. It's probably like late 90s, but it's the same deal. He's rubber. And his ass is completely gone. There's no <laughs> pants on it. I have it in my car. He just rides around there. He also has no fingers. I bought it for a quarter. Oh. Of the <laughs> I used to get such anxiety watching other kids play with action figures roughly. Yeah. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> You're playing with them wrong. You know what? That's going to be worth one day, asshole. And the other thing about the LJN is that a lot of them did have their own accessories that were easily lost. Bossman oh, yeah. had a nightstick. Hacksaw had the two by four. It's it's this big, you know, oh, tiny. it's so small. Yeah, they're so tiny and you're throwing them around. A toddler is going to choke on it for sure. <laughs> oh, Horrible yeah, idea. For sure. Well, that's good stuff. All right, man. Crush, will you tie up this game at one apiece and you take control of the board? What category are we going with for our final one-point round? Oh, man. Things are going so well that I think I have to do this one. I have to go news here because we're still in the one-point rounds. RJ might hate me after throwing this news story out, but it's 1989, so I have to do it. Uh, February 10th, 1989. It's a really touchy subject, especially in the 80s. You know, We've done the whole John Stossel thing. We've covered that before. But it's a huge wrestling story from 1989. I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. And I'd like to hear what a professional wrestler's take on the whole situation is. Meaning me? You're talking about Yes, I am talking about, about you. <laughs> it's not just us dickheads always like, oh, yeah, oh well, fuck them. Hey, believe me, anyone could be a professional wrestler. <laughs> Good know to know. That. I see some I've, people. I've wrestled really, people like... in far worse shape than any of you gentlemen. Trust me. <laughs> it's not so much the shape. Actually, no, it is a shape. Like, if I go to ShopRite and I see somebody driving around one of them scooters when they don't have any business, I always wonder myself, like, why the fuck are you on that? <laughs> they broke their ankle getting out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that's a big deal. 
But uh, this story right here comes by way of the New York Times. And I hate the title of this article, but here it is. It's now it can be told those pro wrestlers are just having fun by some uh, jabroni named Peter Kerr. All right. So here's, here's the article in an attempt to free their events from regulations that apply to boxing and other sports that cause serious injury. Linda McMahon and the WWF participated in a New Jersey legislative hearing in an attempt to deregulate professional wrestling in New Jersey. To push this deregulation, Linda had to commit the ultimate wrestling sin and admit that professional wrestling was just a predetermined event meant to entertain and not an actual fight. As a result of her testimony, a bill deregulating professional wrestling passed the Senate by a vote of 37 to 1. Once the WWF stated that they featured scripted sports entertainment with a predetermined outcome, it was ruled that New Jersey had no authority to regulate their events. And I, I want to see where this comes in, if it's changed at all, too. Under said legislation, the state's athletic control board would no longer have to license wrestlers, promoters, timekeepers, referees, and the wrestlers would no longer be required to take a physical prior to an exhibition. Is that still true or so that I don't know what the deal is in New Jersey, but that's determined by state. And there are still some states where you need to be licensed. And it's still run by the athletic commission because it's certainly in a manner athletic. Right. And also highly dangerous. Oh, of course. Dude, we we watched just the other night we had um double or nothing. Dude, there were spots in there. I literally had to close one eye. And I, I mean I'm not yeah. there. There's no crowd. So you didn't really get the feeling of the crowd, but like when Darby Allen jumped off the top of a fucking ladder with a skateboard on top of yeah. the ladder, I was just like, oh, what? Oh. I always say for something that is fake, it could be a lot more fake. Right. <laughs> yeah. We could have turned that knob up a little more. It's, <laughs> it's so great. Let me just finish this last paragraph in here. It says uh, the WWF cleverly escaped regulation in New Jersey by admitting the professional wrestling is an act. In, and I quote, this is what they actually said. It's an activity in which participants struggle hand in hand, primarily for the purpose of providing entertainment to spectators rather than conducting a bona fide athletic contest, end quote. And by doing so, it actually also helped them with uh, the state tax on television rights. So you know that they had to do it primarily. For, I'm sure there was a lot of money involved there. So that is another reason that they did that. But this is uh, one of those days where they say that, you know, kayfabe was definitely put to the test. So this is the thing that is so, so, so interesting that in, in my research, the first fixed match on a grand scale was 1925. Okay. And then five years after that, the New York Times decides to not cover wrestling results because they know it's bullshit. So this is in 1930, and the New York Times is hip to what's going on. <laughs> also, like, you don't need to break kayfabe or see how they did it. You just need a mild understanding of physics to understand that this is not real at all. So, so why were they lying to people for that long? I don't understand. It's kind of like Santa Claus in a way. Yes. I, you know, that that's how I kind of like in wrestling, as, especially as a kid. Yeah. Because like you wanted to believe, you believed in it. And then one day one of your prick friends said, there's no Santa Claus. And you're like, well, fuck you, man. And then you told somebody else. But even when you were a kid, when you were play wrestling, you you understood what that meant. 
we actually beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> I, I shit you not. We had this little courtyard in between the two yards, and we used to do Royal Rumbles, and it was surrounded by a fence. And we literally, and it wasn't because we thought wrestling was, you know, real, but we were trying to mimic what you guys do. And, right. but we just fucked each other up. So that just gives even more credit to what you do to not get injured, you know? Cause we seriously, like there were broken arms. I remember I got smashed into a car and I get stitches behind my head cause somebody swung <laughs> me into it. That's where they got Jerry Lawler's new face. <laughs> <laughs> One of your neighbor kids. And also, Vern Gagne apparently admitted uh, the same thing in the 70s to get out of paying whatever athletic commission fees. So the answer seems to be in wrestling is always money. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. For sure. And uh, yeah, it was one of those interesting things where like they would admit it and then still not admit it. And still now there's old wrestlers being like, I'll teach that reporter guy a thing or two. like, (laughs) Are you new? What is the deal? This is very fake. See, I love it now. Like, I think back in the day, people took it so seriously. And we're we're going on rambles with this. I don't give a shit. But, like, back in the day, it was taken so seriously that, like, even after a contest, like, the wrestlers still kind of, like, built it up that it was real. And, like, nowadays, you you kind of watch these, like, post, uh, post-event scrums, media scrums, and everyone's just kind of open about the whole thing. And there are some people that continue with their character, but ultimately it's just like normal talk, like in their podcasts or whatever. So yeah. Yet I, I would love it if they just stopped and took a bow like a Broadway play. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. It's ultimately it's, it's entertainment. You don't, after a movie, you're not like, Oh, is that real? Well, triple H used to bow in all of his matches. So yes, fair enough. But I think the the other thing is, if we actually compared it to movies and Broadway plays, people would quickly determine it's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stay away from comparing it to movies. <laughs> All right. I, we'll do so. But anyhow, uh, that was my choice. So I don't know who's next. All right. So for news, 1981 wrestling, I uh, I found a debut of a wrestler. And, uh, you know, sometimes when... Uh, promotions are trying to think of new characters you kind of pull from all different aspects well over in japan they wanted to introduce a new light heavyweight division so why not go for a comic book character as a professional wrestler this sounds like a great idea so they found a comic book character or an anime character that was about a professional wrestler that was a feared heel in the united states And then a young Japanese boy said, you know, when I grow up, I want to be just like this wrestler and be a villain too. So that wrestler said no more. And he came home and became a national hero to Japan. The story I'm telling you, of course, is the story of Tiger Mask, who debuted on April 23rd, 1981. They wanted to create a new character and a new style of wrestling. And what Tiger Mask brought to the game absolutely revolutionized and changed the game of wrestling. Really introduced a faster-paced style, doing more aerial moves, moves using the ropes, uh, similar to the Lucha Libre style. Well, in his first match on April 23rd, 81, he put on an absolute clinic with the great Dynamite Kid. Throughout the years, the Tiger Mask character would live on and get played by several different wrestlers. Yeah, but the original Tiger Mask debuted April 23rd, 1981. And if you're looking for relevancy, you just watch any match today and you're going to see moves that are directly from his repertoire. 
Matter of fact, Rey Mysterio's 619 was originally called the Tiger Faint Kick, and you got the Tiger Suplex, watch any Kenny Omega match, or even X-Pac's little jumping heel kick. That's a move right from Tiger Mask's repertoire. So that's what I got for news, the debut of Tiger Mask. All right, Bo B-Craft, over to you. Well, in a career that began and was over quicker than a hiccup, legendary New York Giants linebacker Lawrence Julius Taylor, better known as LT, made his professional wrestling debut with the WWF by taking on Bam Bam Bigelow in the main event, the main event of WrestleMania 11, April uh, April 2nd, 1995 in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Now, this was a nice... Long, slow burn, slow buildup. Uh, feud began after he appeared at ringside at the Royal Rumble and laughed in the face of Bam Bam Bigelow after he was pinned by uh, the one, two, three kid or X Pac six, whatever you want to call him. So over the next several weeks, they you know they they drag this storyline out. The two are trash talking. They just build the feud up and it builds and builds until the culmination of WrestleMania, where yes, Taylor picked up the pinfall over Bam Bam after a second rope forearm drop, which is of course we all know. Uh, the ultimate finisher, the deadliest of aerial assaults. Uh, to my knowledge, he's he's not performed in a ring since that night uh, 25 years ago, and I probably wouldn't either if I got Bam Bam Bigelow kicked out of uh, Ted DiBiase's stable. <laughs> so there you go. The short, quick career of LT, Lawrence Taylor, in the professional wrestling realm. He's one of the really, really uh, underrated celebrity matches ever. He was he came to work and that match was good and he threw a shitload of forearms. <laughs> <laughs> he was no Carl Malone. No, Carl Malone was great. I think, but Lawrence, like, really, that was the main event of that WrestleMania. And it's just crazy to think about how good that match was, yet how um underrated it is. I don't think people look back on it as fondly as perhaps a Mr. T. Maybe if it was like a Bo Jackson. Maybe then they'd have a better shot, you know? Uh, that's a, It's a fascinating... Also on that show, there was a performance by Salt and Pepper. <laughs> his, his theme song was What a Man. Oh, very nice. I was hoping it was Push It. Oh, I wish. <laughs> so uh, I think that was good. However, and certainly, you know, admitting wrestling is is scripted, as they say. I will say... Let me just put it out there. If there are any wrestling bookers listening, can we script these things better? I'm given an outline at best. <laughs> I don't know what my motivation is, where to stand. I know nothing. My ultimate vote, if I'm going to really go by influence, and I think I should, it's longest lasting, would be Tiger Mask. Because not only did he you know, mold the modern style, but if you watch his matches, he's still doing shit in those matches that is so crazy that I still don't see it today. <laughs> he was really ahead of his time and really one of the few like cool guys at the time, especially with the mask. The other mask guys were like Mil Mascaris and he was kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. He had like a little Liberace <laughs> vibe to him. It was a little hard to figure <laughs> Most out. Most of the masks guys were, especially like in North America, they just back in the day, it was kind of lame, yeah. kind of boring. Yeah, for sure. That same thing, like great Muda, like the other night I watched, uh, I don't even want to say what it is yet, but I watched another event where he was on and he was doing shit that I'd see these days and he was doing it fantastic. And it was just like, why wasn't that dude at the top of the card? Yeah. Yeah. Muda is one of my all time favorites. The feud he had with Sting back in the day, 
is just some of the best matches I've ever seen. Just really well told. Have two different color. Uh, what do they call the shit? Like the uh, mist. The, the mist. Two different color. Like how do you even do that? He was asking a lot. I think it, he did tell a very complex story character wise oh, yeah. for wrestling at the time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Especially in. The promotions that he was in, everything was very simple, except yeah. for his. When, like, another foreigner's gimmick would just be, I'm Russian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bad guy. Yeah, exactly. I'm communist. All right. Well, this game is tied up at 1-1-1 one, one, and one, as we're heading into the first two-point rounds, and I have control of the board. You know what, gentlemen? I want to go to movies for the next round. I think we're going to do some mm. wrestling movies. So, for my first pick... You know, we're going to go with a wrestler by the name of Mr. Ox Baker, who you guys might remember from the late 70s, early 80s. He was a staple heel in all of the territories. You might not remember the name, but you'll know the face. Long, overgrown mustache, and then the really signature pointed eyebrows. Kind of what you'd see out of, like, Sinister Minister years later. So you're wondering, well, what movie did this gentleman do? He actually did a few. But in 1981, you'd know him best from the movie Escape from New York, where he actually played the gladiatorial combat of Snake Pilskin, Kurt Russell. Pliskin. What did I say? (laughs) I like Pilskin. Who the fuck is Snake Pilskin? Oh, it's his cousin. That was like his red mist, green mist. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I got. Escape from New York, 1981, uh, and it has Ox Baker in it. He's just awesome in the movie. Such a commanding presence on screen. I'm surprised this guy didn't do more movies. He only did a handful of films. But, uh, yeah, Escape from New York. That's my movie's offering for this first two-point round. Man Crush, over to you. That was an excellent description, by the way, because when you said the name, I really didn't know who you were talking about. And as soon as you said the eyebrows, I knew exactly. I just watched that last week, too. The mustache is just, like, long and overgrown. Yeah, kind of like my shitty mustache. Right, exactly. Like, yeah. And then the yeah. eyebrows kind of angle in and then come out as a reverse teardrop. He's like Abe Vigoda's evil brother. Back when wrestling still had remnants of the freak show. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No? yeah, he was definitely, Ox Baker was definitely a relic from that era. And, you know, that's why he traveled all these different territories. He was a heel character and he was, you know, he was the big heavy that was coming in to put somebody over from town to town. And outside of Andre, he was a pretty, uh, pretty commanding presence. Yes, he was. Well, unlike yours, it just has the one actor. This is a whole movie is about wrestling. Uh, June 2nd, 1989. The gloves are starting to come off now because it's tied. We're in two point rounds. So. Here we go, Mark. Uh, again, <laughs> another one. I just I rewatched this last night. Total '80s enjoyment. It's a bit Rocky Four mixed with a story about Ted Turner. At least, like that's the vibe that I get from it. Uh, like I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh, cop it, and a half. It's not cop <laughs> and a half. It's close. Uh, I'm pretty sure to conclude this movie, Hulk Hogan commits two murders. And nobody cared. He actually got like some insane pop for it. Uh, But then on top of it all, you get like a smoking hot Joan Severance is in this movie, even though like she's supposed to be working for Ted Turner as a saboteur and ends up falling for Hulk Hogan and his ridiculous 
push-up routine and a pair of like miniature underwear all sweaty <laughs> but i mean it's 1989 so who wouldn't you know but uh this movie it went on to take in 16 million dollars at the box office about 34 million dollars in 2020 and as far as like ww i'm gonna call it wwf just because as far as like wwf productions go this is probably the most recognized cinematic experience in their entire catalog probably the most profitable uh, one of the most nostalgic parts of this entire movie is you get to see like the WWF logo on the turnbuckles and the ring and it's yeah. on the actual ring itself. And then Hulk Hogan or rip as they call him is the WWF heavyweight champion of the world. And at that time in 1989, I mean, that made all the difference to me as a kid because it wasn't like some made up organization, which they did in a lot of movies, but it was always weird to me that they just didn't call him Hulk Hogan. I know it was done by New Line, but like obviously WWF was involved. So why the fuck are you calling him Rip? But anyhow, and going back to a point that you were making before about Lawrence Taylor and how anybody could be a wrestler, this is kind of where I differ on that. Because when I was 11 years old and this movie came out, but I totally agree on the movie part because of this. I totally remember buying into like Tom Tiny Lister as Zeus. And if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, this is a. Uh, he played Debo in Friday um, and I totally bought it until they put him in the ring on WWF television. That was an, an absolute abomination. And it, it just speaks volumes about like actual professional wrestlers like you that go through and do this the right way, because I was scared shitless at the dude in the movie at 11 years old. But then I thought he was like an absolute joke in the ring when they had him like was was he part of SummerSlam or uh, WrestleMania Five? I can't remember. SummerSlam. It was SummerSlam, yeah. So I don't know. It was, was kind of weird, but in the movie, it was great. He was fucking psycho, choking people for no reason, breaking. I don't even know what happened to uh, old Randy. Do you break his neck? Because then all of a sudden he's standing at the end. Yeah, Zeus breaks everybody's neck. Sometimes he'll break your neck five times in one match. That's just <laughs> how he rolls. Except for Rip, he couldn't break his neck. Uh, but, of course, we're talking about uh, No Holds Barred that was released on June 2nd, 1989. There was also uh, no, no Holds Barred, the movie, the match, the pay-per-view event <laughs> where they played the movie. And then I believe it was uh, Randy Savage and Zeus against Brutus and Hulk Hogan because yep. they knew enough by then to, to not leave Zeus in the ring by himself. <laughs> Remember he had those big shoulder pads that he came out with. It was all like chrome looking. But and then, whatnot. so the gimmick, it is weird. And it's that one of those weird things where it's like, um, you know, that when it's like, why don't you just be Hulk Hogan? It's like that Cosby show thing where it's like, it's the Cosby show, but like, we got to call you Cliff. Like, what the hell, man? <laughs> and then, but then, you know, Zeus invades the real WWF, but as Zeus, yeah right <laughs> like why why couldn't you just make it one way i don't but, get it i mean that is consistent with the lack of logic in the wrestling universe i suppose so so it actually ties in so it makes it a better pick but yes it uh, makes sense <laughs> in its uh illogicality especially in 1989 now i'm just wondering why we didn't get like bill cosby in some sort of wrestling movie mm. it's coco beware <laughs> it's a tough subject all right, Bo B. Craft, what right. do you have for the movies round? Movies in 1995 that are affiliated with professional wrestling. This was the third installment in a trilogy that America demanded. 
I'm talking the summer blockbuster, years in the making. As Spencer and Brew broke into his headquarters to capture the notorious drug lord, Manuel Santiago, setting forth a domino effect of pure adrenaline and action, I'm talking about the Hulk Hogan vehicle, released July 11th, 1995, Thunder in Paradise 3. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was only a TV show. (laughs) No, get this. This third installment, actually the combination of two episodes of the Thunder in Paradise series, which each separate part aired during the show's initial run and syndication. Now, when that failed, they thought, of course, well, what if we make it a movie? And sure enough, a global box office success followed (laughs) shortly thereafter. And by that, I mean it went straight to video, where it performed dismally at best. And, uh, of course, this is not to be confused with the Jimmy Buffett super hit Cheeseburger in Paradise. (laughs) Thunder in Paradise 3, the third part. Wait, were there two other movies? Yeah. I assume using the same premise of, well, this was a shitty flop of a TV show, so let's just combine the episodes and put it out on a direct-to-video release. No, it's like Leonard Part 6. There was no other ones. They just made Thunder in Paradise 3. (laughs) (laughs) Thunder in Paradise 3 was actually the first movie in the entire series. (laughs) It was like Star Wars. There was also a kind of choose-your-own-adventure CD-ROM game. Thunder oh, in Paradise, God. where they filmed extra stuff. They filmed basically a mini episode. Was one of the choices to stop playing? <laughs> <laughs> to drown. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to quit? <laughs> well, that that whole series is so bad that if not for the failure of it, Hulk Hogan may never have joined WCW and right. yeah. NWO. Yeah. Wasn't it on the same like uh, production lot or whatever? Yeah, yeah. they all filmed it yeah. on the Universal lot, so he was right there. So it was so easy for Bischoff and Turner to talk him into it. Yeah, they just showed him a check. Yeah, it works every time. <laughs> wow. All right, well, let's go down to RJ City for the ruling, for the movies round. What a tremendous collection of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Lord. Um and it really t- does illuminate the, the fact that No Holds Barred is, and you're right, I would say the most uh, successful film that they've had. And they've been trying to make films at least now for the past 10 years. And nothing's even come close to that. Which also, <laughs> also No Holds Barred had uh, one of the first six-sided rings. Yes, it did. It was, yep. Very, very on you. They're like, let's just do everything different. Because well, that was like the can. Ted Turner guy had that. It was. Yeah. Dude, do you, did you guys... When you watch that, I didn't even get that until last night when I, I've watched it a million times and I was watching it last night and I'm like, I really think that like that was about Ted Turner and his like evil organization coming up to start a wrestling organization. And it was just so coincidental, like the whole yeah. thing and the timing and everything. Yeah. And then uh, Ted Turner really got back at him by making Thunder in Paradise. <laughs> <laughs> That'll show him. That really, really works. So just like by default, I think I must choose Oxmaker. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I mean, that's it's probably the best movie of the three. It's the best movie. I think it did the best. And I think he's probably the best actor, <laughs> even even though the only other actor is Hulk Hogan. <laughs> really? Uh, Zeus is pretty convincing in the movie. Yeah, Zeus Zeus did have a good career and he had a nice he was in Little Nicky also. 
Oh, you assume the human centipede three. So, oh yeah, it's <laughs> funny. Why wouldn't you induct him into the Hall of Fame? You want to get these A-list celebrities? No. I think Tiny Lister would be a fine choice. Now, much like Thunder in Paradise three, was Human Centipede three also the first movie? <laughs> well, you're supposed to actually watch Human Centipede three, then the first Thunder in Paradise. <laughs> Oh, it's all part of the Hulk Hogan shared universe. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. The tiny Lister <laughs> multiverse. <laughs> that has to be a gimmick that somebody starts. You know how they say all the uh, Pixar movies are connected? Yeah. In that yeah. same long winding. Yeah. All the human set. Anything tiny Lister is in is connected. <laughs> <laughs> was he really in the third one? That was the one that was in the jail, right? Yeah, he was in it. God, I don't even remember that one. I remember the black and white one in the original. I barely remember the third one he doesn't either <laughs> it's, it's not good i just remember them cut some dude's balls off is all i remember now what movie doesn't these days though yeah, that's true all right so uh mark all right so with that win i pick up the lead three to one to one heading into the final round uh which is music so jeez <laughs> Really backed yourself into a corner on this one. I did. I did. Music was actually my weakest category coming into this. But you know what? We're going to play it for the win anyway. So you know what, guys? We're going to go over to the wrestling album. You know, one of the greatest wrestling albums for music of all time. But you're like, Mark, man, you have 1981, not 1985. Well, you know what? You would be right. But you know what? There's a song on the wrestling album that I just love by the junkyard dog and Vicky C Robinson called grab them cakes. Well, originally that was released in 1981 by a little known obscure rap artist by the name of captain chameleon. He actually recorded another song that was on the pile driver album, which was the wrestling album too. He had worked with some of the same writers and producers that worked on this album. So the junkyard dog and Vicky Sue Robinson covered Grab Them Cakes, which was originally released in 1981. So I know it, 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 it's a stretch, but that's where I'm coming for wrestling music from 1981. That's a Mongolian stretch. Yeah. The original release of the Junkyard Dog cover song, Grab Them Cakes. <laughs> I feel for you, though, because like 81, <laughs> I couldn't really think of anything for 81 either. So you got to go straight to the newspapers. Yeah. And like, what the hell do you search for? Yeah, they don't ever report on theme music or entrance music no you know i know the Freebirds first started using entrance music around that time but everything i could find in my research would say early 80s there was never any specific dates so to nail down a, a hard date for something was a little difficult and even then that Freebirds thing is a little bit of a old wives tale yeah i don't think they like gorgeous george was using music decades before that right they may have been the first to use Leonard Skinner. Yeah, they were the first <laughs> to I'll use give them that. music. Uh, also, very interesting, that whole album is cover songs with the exception of Hulk Hogan's song, uh, both Hulk Hogan songs, uh, The Real American, and then the piano th uh, song, which came became the Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling theme song. Right. But also, uh, Roddy Piper sings a song called For Everybody, and it was a cover of this weird-ish punk song from 1980 called Fuck Everybody, which is actually incredibly... It was by Mike Angelo and the Idols, and it's an incredibly catchy song, and you're just, you know, unfortunately, a year too late. 
That sucks. And you, you know, I was looking at your t-shirts, but of course with all this shit going on, um, we're actually, we're on pro wrestling tees as well. We never sell a damn shirt there because we're not wrestlers, but, um, I saw you had a shirt that says fuck RJ city. Yeah. Cause I was, uh, well, cyber bullied by a bunch of high school kids <laughs> and they kept writing fuck RJ on uh, all my posts like everything it was this weird gang of them this group message and they would keep just writing it to me <laughs> and then i messaged the guy who designs my shirt and i was like how quickly can you get this shirt out and then when i got it they got so mad and it sold <laughs> incredibly well <laughs> so in in the end uh i fucked myself but in the best way possible that's yeah it's pretty awesome though yeah i, I like i was like man i want to get a shirt beforehand like i saw that one on there i knew that one wouldn't fly but you have some cool ones on there um what are they, if people just go to pro wrestling tees just type in your name they find it pro wrestling tees.com slash rj city and there will be a bevy of kitschy designs for your pleasure yeah <laughs> we have three on there and just go to our <laughs> t public account there's way more good okay yes i want to make sure you get your plugs in too yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, we're going to piggyback off yours but if yeah. you're there if you're there for an rj city shirt and you buy one you might as well buy ours also right it's a good combo right yeah fuck it. save on the shipping yeah there you go <laughs> all right man crush what do you have for this final round in music all right so let's go back to may 7th 1989 and i like i was a bit torn on this pick right here Wrestling albums, kind of like you, like they were not available in 1989. We had wrestling albums, 87, 85, 89. There was none. And I almost went with Dusty Rhodes, Honky Tonk Man. They had a storyline where Dusty and Honky Tonk, they got into like a sing off and Dusty performs uh, Dusty Be Good. <laughs> well, and this is when he was still in tie dye, by the way, right. before they switched him over to polka dots, Smart which man. is like a, a month later. Uh, but I couldn't find like the whole thing and I wanted to watch the video and really get into it. I couldn't find it. But then I rewatched the again and something else I had never seen as a kid. It was WCW NWA pay-per-view wrestle war. And I was fucking blown away by the matches on this thing. This is the great mood of match I was talking about before. Right. It actually kicks off the show. Uh, but I, like I said, as a kid, I totally dug WWF events. But as an adult... I think Wrestle War was just way better and it held up a whole hell of a lot more than any other WWF event from 1989. If I go back and watch it now, I think I'd probably be bored. Yeah. Uh, but I was not bored watching this one. Uh, this is actually the pay-per-view where Flair and Steamboat, they lock horns for the third and final part of that year's trilogy between them and Steambuck, Steambuck, Steamboat took the, the last two matches and everyone was basically saying that, you know, this is Flair's last stand. And uh, Dave Meltzer came in again and uh, at the Wrestling Observer, and he ranked this one. This is one of those uh, four matches I was talking about The Flair was on. Another five-star match. It's an absolute classic. It's 30 minutes long. Totally awesome story that's being told in the, the ring. And then Flair pulls this one out. He gets the victory, retain, or he regains the title from Steve Boat for the sixth time. And then Terry Funk, who's one of the judges for this match, Comes into the ring and he's just blowing Ric Flair. Like, you're fantastic. Thank you. Like, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, well, I want to be the next guy up to take your title or to to challenge you. And it's it's a really cool, like, just like the whole story that's going on here. And he's just like, 
dude, you've been in Hollywood for like four years, been hanging out with Stallone. No, like there's a top 10. I got to go off the top 10. And then Terry just absolutely obliterates Flair, which makes this, the match is awesome. And this just takes it to another level. And then he pile drives him on top of a table. And then it led to the feud that I talked about earlier in my first pick. So you had that for like seven months and that all began right here. But then you're saying like, whoa, where's the music come in? Well, aside from this event right here, taking place in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee, Ted Turner actually gave them extra money for this. It said, use this for marketing and promotion, do whatever, let's get pay-per-view buys up. And they ended up getting 120,000 pay-per-view buys for this. So that's not too bad. So as the story goes, Ric Flair is like a big country music fan. And he was able to book the Oak Ridge boys to not only perform the national anthem, but then come in like halfway through and do an eight song show in the middle of the event. I just want to, I just want to interject. I have opened for the Oak Ridge boys twice. See, that's fucking <laughs> like full circle. Jesus. Full you're, circle. You're a legend. If I win this round, you're even bigger. They but... smell incredible just for what it's worth. <laughs> well, the dude just died last month. And even then, he smells incredible. I'm sure. Not, they all smell like gray flannel and grandfathers. <laughs> but yeah, I give you, this is 1989's Wrestle War with the Oak Ridge Boys. Wow. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Can you rip us out an Oak Ridge Boys song, Bo? You want, to, you want Elvira? Or, yes, uh... of course. All right, Bo Beecraft. What do you have for the music round? Well, gentlemen, hold on to your undergarments because available now on Amazon in compact disc format for $49.99 or the timeless cassette tape for a mere $15.50. Who could forget the 1995 musical opus Hulk Rules, the debut album from the wrestling boot band fronted by Terry Balea, also known as Hulk Hogan. Clocking in at a monstrous heavyweight 29 minutes and 34 seconds, this record has it all. Jesus. Talking a genre-spanning masterpiece, Rock, pop, hip-hop, more. Uh, so in other words, this record paved the way for modern country music. Uh, but most <laughs> of the songs on the record were written by Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart, who actually has legitimate music cred, by the way. Uh, Hulk Hogan contributes bass and vocals. Jimmy Hart does vocals and percussion. A guy named J.J. McGuire does a little bit of everything. And of course, the luscious Linda Hogan providing vocals and percussion. So in other words, there's nothing these folks can't do or play. Uh, unfortunately, following its release, it was it was universally panned. Uh, the negative response and the fact that it even exists at all has earned the album somewhat of a cult following, though. Uh, it can't be considered a complete bomb, as I did find it peaked at number 12 on the Top Kid Audio Kid <laughs> Albums chart. That's a chart. Whatever that is. Whatever that is. <laughs> Uh, I had a runner-up here, uh, but it, it didn't seem like Rick Derringer was doing much in 1995, so I'm going to have to settle for <laughs> Hulk Rules, the debut album from the wrestling boot band. Wow. Now, I had heard that Hulk made that in tribute to a kid. Some, yes. Some so British there's, kid. Yeah, it was, it, it was probably, I'm guessing, one of the first instances of WWF or WWE's uh, partnership with Make-A-Wish. Evidently, um, Hulk was supposed to have this kid, you know, ringside or something like that, so the kid didn't make it. So there's there's some sort of line on the record about, I guess I'll be wrestling with an empty seat 
in the front row at, at Wembley or something like that. It's poignant. It's sad, but it's also just kind of hokey and bizarre. And 29 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> and not a badge. It's all killer, no filler. How many tracks yeah. is that in 29 minutes? 18. <laughs> you know, punk album. Well, this is just, it's just the first in a series. Uh, the, the Time Life collection is available now. <laughs> 17 discs. 14 records. All right. Well, let's go down to RJ City for the final ruling on this game. Wow. 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 I really, really, really have to go for the deep cut of the Oak Ridge boys. It's not that often you get like such legitimately decent music involved (laughs) in wrestling at all ever. That's like, you know, getting Paul Simon to do Survivor Series. (laughs) Wait, that never happened? No, I've always said the reason that I haven't done WrestleMania is because they won't pay for Paul Simon to do my I just think that's cool though like have you ever done an event that had like a, a mini concert in between yeah it's horrible it's some like local <laughs> rock oh. band and they'll play some generic songs or the worst was we did a show and i care it was a part of a fair or something and they're like oh they got this band and they're gonna do everyone's wrestling music like when you walk to the ring okay i'm like great what they didn't tell us was the songs were not our songs. They do like, I don't know, like Triple H and like Batista, all like, you know, Rocky guitar songs. And I'm like, but everyone's going to know that these are not our songs. Please stop. Oh, Everyone knows I come out to rock set. <laughs> That's because you got the look. <laughs> all right. Well, what we got in this game is a tie, gentlemen. Oh, get out of here. Uh, do you want me to flip Hollywood Babylon again? No, you know what? <laughs> I'll I'll throw something out. Who am I tied with? Mark, you have three? Yes. I have three, yes. Okay. All right. So I'll throw this out there. In 1989, just to show like you know how awesome 89 was, Stone Cold Steve Austin actually debuted in September of 89. All right. My extra little tidbit of information, we're going to go back to the man who likes to hurt people. Mr. Ox Baker, who, you know, we talked about how he was in, uh, you know, a lot of different movies and Escape from New York. Well, on February 12th, 1981, he was on a popular TV show as well. Ox Baker was a contestant on The Price is Right. Get out of here. Did not make it to the showcase showdown, but had a great back and forth with Bob Barker. Jesus Christ, can you imagine someone that horrifying saying, one dollar, Bob? (laughs) (laughs) They're just going to let him win at that point. (laughs) You wanted to play Plinko? He just walks up and eats the big wheel. (laughs) So that's what I got for my bonus round. Ox Baker on The Price is Right. Uh, You know, I think if you opened with that, I would have called it for you immediately (laughs) for any of the other rounds. I think it's clear, based on that factoid, I have to go with 1981. Wow. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not a Stone Cold fan. But I also have another wrestling game show fact that will tie all our worlds together. Oh, boy. There is an episode of the original Hollywood Squares where the contestant on the show is, before he's the AWA world champion, he's just a plucky young wrestler named Nick Bockwinkle. Wow. Okay? And even better than that, the bottom left square is Charlie Weaver, better known as David Arquette's grandfather. 
Wow. And they both fucked Phyllis Diller after the show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Jim J. Bullock watched. As was customary. <laughs> wow. That's fucking, that's so wild all the time. It must be a wrestling thing. Like everything just ties together. I got to say, this has been the most Ox Baker heavy episode <laughs> I've ever been a part of. That's the most he's been brought up. And believe up. me, I've been, a lot, I've been in a lot of Ox Baker episodes. We got notes from the network. They said more Ox Baker. Yeah. <laughs> they want to cover that eyebrow demographic. <laughs> well, now that I lost for three times in a row, let me ask you a question. Like all this stuff about Cobb salads, please explain it. Like, <laughs> Bo, Bo was trying to explain it to us, and I was just like, I, I, okay. I don't, well, I just don't get you know, uh, wrestling contracts, it's always like, who's going to get signed? And everyone's like, you should sign with these people. You should sign with these people. And I would just retweet them and say, I'm not signing with these people until they get me a Cobb salad. <laughs> and it's such a stupid salad. And it's so, it's so hearty because it has meats and egg and stuff. And I think it's an excellent demand for a contract. It's the po' boy of salads. Yes. You got to start wearing a brown derby hat to the ring. Because, of course, we all know that the Cobb salad was invented at the Brown Derby restaurant. There we go. Right? That tie-in. Does it have to have a honey mustard? <laughs> I heard it has to have some sort of a raspberry vinaigrette. Ooh, that's different. There is a lot of conjecture, and I'm, I am willing to be flexible on the dressing. Let's yeah, I was going to say, if they put it in the contract and they get you the wrong Cobb salad, would that make a difference? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we'd have to discuss it. We'd have to go back and forth and perhaps negotiate the ingredients. <laughs> do you do, Now, are there a lot of – dude, because you're, like, super charismatic. You're obviously very smart. You're good in the ring. Like, everything's good. Like, you're full packaged – are there other offers that are out there or do you just like staying on the independent scene rather than uh, there have been uh, some of them are not very good <laughs> as you can <laughs> probably imagine. And I also kind of enjoy doing my own thing. I I'm really, sure. really do. I, I'm a, I try to be as low, low bullshit as possible. Uh, and you know, if I have to encounter a certain level of bullshit, I hope it is a lot of money. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just enjoy kind of doing my own thing. And I feel like everyone has the same platform now. Right. We're yeah. all on this even thing where it's always like, people always say to me, why don't you sign with them? I want you to make the big money. And I want to say to them, don't you understand? It's still your money. Yeah. Like just give it directly to me then. <laughs> exactly. You're just giving it to them. And then they're giving me a cut of it. Just give it to me. It's fine. So who knows? I mean, could I sign with somebody? Sure, if the right thing came along, it would be interesting and fun. I certainly have enough friends that are doing it, and I think I would be a valuably, valuably surreal addition to any wrestling program. Yeah, it would be pretty cool. Like, where where would you want to go if you could go anywhere? I don't know if you would answer that question, but like, where would in the landscape of what's yeah. going on now? Because I think over the past twenty years, like, obviously, it was just pretty much one organization. Now it's you know, there's like four or five that are pretty big. So it, it it really depends what they offer. I mean, I have my own ideas in the sense that I probably need a little sandbox of my own to play in. So I think that's always most attractive to me. Anyone who hands me a mic and not a script, I'm like, well, this is pretty good. Uh, so I, I, I like to create stuff on my own. And to be serious, one thing David Arquette and I seriously went after was we we're trying to attempt to actually host a PBS pledge drive. Wow. Yeah. I think my, my favorite RJ City bit is the, the PBS logo. 
and I, I've probably tweeted that countless times, like ad nauseum. Oh, thank That's, you. It gets my it's goose. It's my favorite. It's good to to bring that back, especially in the very aggressive arena of wrestling. I want to balance that out with a little <laughs> bit of PBS. You kind of have an interesting, you know, character or gimmick or whatever you want to call it, in that you're very much um say it not say present it. mainstream but you're, you're <laughs> i'm trying to figure out how to say it you know you're, you really harken back to a different time period of entertainment like do you ever d- does that ever like fail you like does that ever fall on deaf ears with a crowd they're like who is this guy talking does it about fail me yeah I, I, well i mean i i work it in a sense where especially as a heel you know part of it is they come to see violence in action and athleticism they definitely definitely whether they know her or not don't want to hear me sing ethel merman <laughs> uh that's up that's up for debate <laughs> so for people who I, I always try to to present it in a way where if you don't get it you still get it and if you get it then you get it like twice right if that makes any sense right. you still yeah. know that i have no business in a wrestling ring when i'm singing you know uh everything's coming up roses one of the most fascinating things I've seen you do was on a, a video call with 28 or so many other uh, WWE and other professional wrestling personalities where you really broke down the heat between the Golden Girls offset. Oh, yeah, that was that was very uh, unusual. But somebody asked me who my favorite Golden Girl was. And I was like, guys, it's clearly B. Arthur and it's not Betty White. And I wanted to divulge the feud that they had and the fact that I'm taking up B's grudge beyond the grave in memory of her. <laughs> Have you ever thought about Rick rooting B. Arthur on your tights? I, I have a picture of B. Arthur on my knee pad, and my finishing move is, of course, knee Arthur. <laughs> Very nice. Did you, did you ever get the uh, the copy of the nude painting of B. Arthur from Eric? I haven't, but if, I mean, I certainly used it, if that's what you're inferring. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, she looks fantastic. The likeness is fantastic. I like it. They did a great job. Well, that was Airheads, right? Where they ask for that, and yes. then I, I think everyone's watched the movie, and then they they go and Google it, and it's right there. Yeah, yeah. but they don't show it in the movie, though, no, do they? No, I don't no. remember. Everybody no. wants a naked picture of B. Arthur. Like I would hang that above my mantle. Dude, you should put that behind you, right next to Jerry Garcia. That would oh, be fucking fantastic. If, if I had that painting, I would. <laughs> it would really break it up back there. <laughs> Like anything else you want to plug or anything like that before you go, man? Um, like no, I always say just Google RJ City and a bunch of weird things will come up, and you can follow <laughs> what you like and don't follow what you don't. But please let me know why you're not following it. <laughs> that would mean a lot to me if I could know. Do you have like a PO box we should mail those uh, comments? To? I sure, yes. Care of Bob Eubank. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that would be amazing if, like, honestly, like I did, like I said before, I I really thought he was dead, but it would be so cool if, like, you can get Bob Eubanks to like be like your manager or something. What was the thing we had written for? I think it was just him showing up at this thing and just cursing me out, which is still one of the funniest things. Even thinking about it, I'm like, that's so good. <laughs> you just got to make him coffee in your underwear. I know. I've got I've gotten a surprising amount of people to do it. People who I thought would not do it. Well, maybe you need to get a picture of Bob Eubanks on your underwear and then just show up at his house with a cup of coffee <laughs> yeah. and his face on your junk. Bob, do you remember me? We emailed like a year and a half ago. I thought it went really well. <laughs> Check out this picture. It's attached. How do I open it? <laughs> 
This is my Bob Ukranks. Seriously, you can come back on whenever you want. Oh, I would like, love yeah. to. Yes. And You're we can't. Fantastic yes, not, I want to exercise my other, my non-wrestling <laughs> knowledge. All right. Well, once again, I want to thank RJ City for coming in, being the celebrity guest judge for this episode. All right, duelers. Well, if you've missed an episode, you can always head over to our website, DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on Spotify. You can subscribe on iTunes, really everywhere podcasts are available. And then while you're on the interwebs, head on over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades, where you can join all the other duelers and share some of your own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.